Hey everybody, this is Nick Padiak. You're listening to I'll Be Damned. My guest this week is Bob Sanders. Uh, Bob was most recently the artistic director of Clockwise Theater in Waukegan, Illinois. I was cast in a show there, uh, and then before we could do the show, it was closed down due to uh, lack of funds. Uh, the, the theater, that is. Uh, he, he covers that during our chat. Uh, but the way that Bob and I ended up knowing each other is that he, in addition to me meeting during our uh, my audition there, uh, he also ended up stage managing the most recent show that I did, which was Death of a Salesman at uh, Center Stage in Lake Forest. So for this chat, Bob came over to my apartment, and uh, we had a few beers while we sat and, and talked, and uh, the, the kids in my building decided to use that time to turn the hallway into a gymboree, so you're going to hear that, and uh, that, that's going to be some fun ambient noise for you. Um, if you want to get a hold of me, my website is nicholaspadiak.com. I'm on Twitter at npadiak. And thanks, as always, to Alex Johnson for the cover art and Matt Pickett for the theme song. So here it is. Enjoy my talk with Bob Sanders. <laughs> from Lake Forest? Uh, originally, yeah. Born uh, there? Born, raised Lake Forest Hospital, yep. Okay. Yeah. How'd that go for you? Uh, I loved Lake Forest growing up, but, you know, I, um, I was different. I was a different kind of a kid. How so? Well, you know, I was, um, what can I say? It's the 1950s and the 1960s, and I wasn't the jock kid. Mm. Uh, my parents were uh, upwardly mobile. And uh, Dad was never very interested in me. As you know, Dad really was not interested in the son at that point when I came around. So I was sort of left to my own devices. How many How many siblings do you have? There's four of us. I have two older sisters, and then my younger brother Dave. And Dave and I are living together now. Mm -hmm. This is many, many years later. At any rate, I went to school. I went to Miami of Ohio uh, after I graduated from Lake Forest High School, and I finally made Lake Forest High School work for me. And I developed, you know, into sort of an interesting young man in some ways, and went off to Miami of Ohio. My family was never very supportive of any kind of theatrical career for me at all. So when did you, when did you decide to start to pursue a theatrical well, I, career? Well, I was always in the high school plays, and mm -hmm. I suppose it started really building something when uh, I was cast in uh, high school productions of Carousel, and then the Crucible and the King and I mm -hmm. and what I was doing was um, uh, uncommon for a kid my age in my experience. By that time I'd already spent years in the back shelves of Lake Forest Library reading every play I could get my hands on. Mm -hmm. So I already had an extensive theatrical self-given education. Mm -hmm. I'd read hundreds of scripts. I was already reading Shaw Hmm. When I was, you know, like a sophomore in high school. Now, why is that? When did I was you drawn to it? Do you remember when that spark started? Yes, I do. I do. Uh, there was a theater out on Forty One called the Tent House Theater, hmm. and uh, I was I had been a movie watcher anyway, and Mom and Dad took us one night to see Oklahoma, at the Tent House Theater. It was a traveling professional national tour coming hmm. through. And I only saw it once, and I might have been 11. And I remember it so well. Still? I remember, oh, yes. Hmm. Oh, yeah. It was incredible. And it changed me. I walked out, what did I just see? It was amazing. The following year, Mom and Dad took us all to see My Fair Lady in the same theater. And it had Rayma Land. If you know the actor Ray mm -hmm. Milland? No. He won the Oscar for The Lost Weekend in 1945. He was oh. a Hollywood star who had, like a lot of stars from the 30s, 40s, and 50s, his career had downscaled, and so he was actually touring. But, I mean, he was a major Hollywood player. Dude, won an Academy Award. Not yeah, that he won an Oscar. Before, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, was, you know, he was a big Paramount Pictures star for many years. At any rate, so he was playing Henry Higgins on tour, and this is an indication of the kind of memory I've got his leading lady, and I was 12. Mm. Her name was Rosemary Rainier. And she was like the grand niece of Louise Rainier, 
who won two Oscars in uh, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer in the 30s, one for The Good Earth and one for The Great Ziegfeld. I'm 12 years old and I know this. Yeah. I know exactly who I'm looking right. at and what I'm looking at because I was self-educated with theater all right. the way on through right. and living in my own little world as far as that went. So I somehow at, along the way seemed to be teaching myself basic technique. So you uh, never did acting classes or anything? You no, just like you taught no. yourself uh, you yeah. love theater and then you just decided to well, audition the first, for shows? The first time that ever I really acted is uh, I was asked to play uh, the kid, Nick, in a staged reading of A Thousand Clowns at our church in about 1964. Mm -hmm. uh, a local lady named Pat Millette, who was one of the founders of Group 4, which became Center Stage Lake Forest, mm -hmm. had seen me at the church and she just had an idea and she called the house one day and she said, would you be interested? And I just went crazy because of course I knew A Thousand Clowns. I knew the movie, I knew the play, I mm -hmm. knew Jason Robards Jr., I knew Herb Gardner, I'd read the script. I knew it. Yeah. You know, by that time I was 13, maybe. So I did A Thousand Clowns with... Oh, that's my phone. Uh, and uh, they were... Everybody was sort of astonishing. How come this kid is so good with this script? Yeah. Because, you know, I was playing a full character and doing all sorts of stuff. At any rate, by the time I got to high school, I was this little stout kid you know, who just was big-eyed about theater, and I was in the chorus of various musicals. By the time I got to be a junior in high school, I'd lost some weight and gained a little bit of cool. And Jay Kreisch, who was a, a magic teacher, he was the English teacher, but he handled all the shows, and he was an incredibly charismatic man. Yeah. Uh, he's the father of Deborah Mel, and Wayne Mel's wife, if you know Wayne Mel. Nope. Wayne Mel's the artistic director of Skokie Theater. Yeah who did a breathtaking Oleana. He directed Oleana hmm. last year at Skokie Theater. It's just an incredible production. Incredible. God. It's one of the best things I've seen since I've been back here. Nice. At any rate, so they, Jay Kreisch directed me, and I can remember while I just played the king in The King and I, I can remember him working with me privately on Saturday mornings to get every nuance out because he knew I had it in him, mm -hmm. me. And he, I remember him saying to me, he said, you have a range and an emotional life that is astonishing in a 16-year-old. Mm. So my parents hated, my, my dad didn't care what I did. My mother hated the fact that I was interested in the theater. Mm. So she didn't want me doing that, but I got to Miami of Ohio, and uh, though I wasn't a theater major, in the second week that I was there, I auditioned for a production of Marat Saad, which was, this was university level, you know, they had money. And I wound up with one of the lead roles. Really? In Marat Saad. Yeah. You weren't a theater major? No. What, were you, what was your major? I, I had no major. I was kind of lost. I didn't know what I was Freshman. doing. Freshman? Yeah. I didn't know what <laughs> I was doing. I still don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. But uh, I had some natural gifts. And uh, the head of the theater department begged me to change my major. And I just couldn't overcome my mother's opposition to all of this. The following year, they did Camelot, and again, I wandered in, and I auditioned, and I wound up playing King Arthur <laughs> in a big university production that they yeah. spent a lot of money on, and they were still very frustrated that I wasn't going to change my major, yeah. and I was resented a little bit because, you know, I came in, and I was good, yeah. but I wasn't a theater major, right. but I was good. I was comfortable on stage, and I could handle, I had just basic technique. Years passed. I went to New York did not pursue theater because I was still under the influence of my mother. And this was after you graduated? Yeah, so I got With to New York. With a degree in? Oh, English and French. Oh, sure. Those, I, yeah. those old useless uh, majors. Well, I've, I had, still I've be, had two I of still those. speak French. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Okay, well, yeah, yeah, I still so do. you can speak it. And you speak English, too. And so. I speak English, right. too, so that it worked. Yeah. Uh, I went off to New York not knowing what I was going to do. I was there. Uh, Why New York? I, there was no way I was going to stay in Illinois. Mm -hmm. There was no way I was going to stay in Lake Forest. Mm -hmm. um, I, was, I wasn't out yet as a gay man, but I was at that point yeah. of acknowledging who I was. I despised my father uh, and didn't want to be anywhere, and anywhere near where he was. I've always had a very good relationship with my sisters and my brother, mm -hmm. and my mother and I have become had become good friends mm -hmm. over the years. But dad was not 
only not interested in me. He was actually a, a negative influence on me. Gotcha. Now, are you comfortable exploring that at all verbally with me? Sure. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Have you come to any? Yeah. Um, Dad had an unfortunate childhood himself. Uh, old guard wasp family. They thought they were Roosevelt's, but they were really basically just good Bergamaster types. <laughs> Uh, and dad really, um, in my opinion, really just, you know, if my sisters and my brother are listening to this, sorry guys, but I just don't think dad should have ever had kids. Hmm. He just didn't have a father instinct. Gotcha. At all. And, uh, mom, a very independent woman, went into a medical career. She became a psychiatric social worker down at Northwestern Hospital. But dad was, um, heavily bipolar. And uh, very successful for a number of years down on LaSalle Street. Mm. And then reached his point where he sort of imploded and couldn't keep up the lifestyle anymore. Dad was a perfect Mad Men era type guy. Gotcha. You know, uh, women, the golf course, making deals, mm -hmm. being a big guy. And he had absolutely no interest in me. It's not that he didn't like me. He just had no interest. And was I that just, specific was, to you? Like, did, yes, did... it was speci uh, specific to me. Hmm. Uh, he was pretty good buddies with my brother, yeah. and my sisters adored him. They, they feared him. I didn't fear him. But um, there was, where I, was, I existed, uh, there was a void. He never, ever really, in his whole life, he never saw me. Yeah. He never did. And do you think, you mentioned earlier, you said the phrase that you, your teacher said that you had a, I don't remember exactly, but a rich a emotional of, life. Uh, yeah, a range and a sensitivity. Do you think of, that that is, sure. was informed by that? Oh, of course. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, actors, artists are basically, they've been harmed in one way or another. And if they've been very lucky with certain influences, they take whatever happened along the way and they've managed to compensate and make, have a creative output, a gift that they're giving back to the world in place of something that they didn't necessarily receive themselves. Yeah. It's more complicated than that, of course, but artists are always looking for the truth of some situation and they're always trying to work something out. And they're not always in control of their gift. They might have great technique, but they don't really know where it comes from yeah. uh, or how it got there. And I had some natural inclinations, which I um, did not really pursue and should have. I should have believed in myself a little more. Hmm. In any event, by the time I'd been in New York for two years and I'd come out and I started going to the gym and all of a sudden where I'd been kind of a homely kid, all of a sudden I became, you know, good looking. Yeah. Something happened. And <laughs> suddenly I was getting attention of a Wait, lot of guys. Very, yeah, and suddenly I was hot. Do you think that that was a confidence thing too? Sure. Whether that comes with, sure, with being you know. comfortable enough to come out or, or whatever? Well, it wasn't that I was comfortable enough to come out or uncomfortable enough. I just had to do it. I had to express myself. There yeah. was simply no way I was ever going to live a closeted life. Yeah. Ever. You know, I've come back here to Lake Forest and I've discovered some people who have met some people along the way who are who have made other choices, and I could not have done that myself. Why do you think that? Why could I have not done that? Yeah, I mean, it, it seems fairly obvious. It seems like a rough life, but were you particularly, what is it about you that you couldn't do that? It's a lie. I couldn't live a lie. Yeah. I couldn't try to be something I wasn't. You know, I like men. Yeah. I like women, too, but men, uh, you know, I, they're, that's where I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, that's where I went. Mm -hmm. uh, that's that whole thing that's 40 years gone now. Yeah. And so now I don't even really think about yeah, it. And, and I've sort of left a lot of that behind me, too, in the last decade. You know, I had uh, a very rich life in New York for many, many, many years. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the AIDS crisis hit. And I was very wrapped up in that. Mm -hmm. uh, I was in the second generation of GMHC volunteers. You know, I went to ACT UP rallies. I protested, carried the signs, went around, held the hands of dozens of friends as they died. I saw a lot over the years. In a way, I've always sort of thought of myself as, um, oh gosh, uh, 
uh, Tom Hanks. Philadelphia? No. No? No, no, Tom Hanks. Uh, Sally Fields' mother. The name's just, uh, you know, the movie. Forrest Gump. Forrest, yes. I'm sort of like the gay Forrest Gump. And that I have been there at the side where great events were going on and I was in the background and you're third guy in the, in the left back yeah, there yeah. but standing there behind you know Larry Kramer or Susan Sarandon or putting together the, uh, New York City's first celebrity AIDS benefit which I ran along with Metropolitan with you know Bette Midler up on the stage which really? yeah yeah it was a, that's something I worked on for six months hmm. the first AIDS benefit I pulled together all the volunteers who served the whole thing. I had about 200 people on staff that night. It was at the Armory, 1986. The entertainment of the night was Bette Midler, Billy Crystal, Harry mm-hmm. Connick Jr., and Robin Williams. Wow. They were the entertainment. The set came from the Metropolitan Opera. It was a David Hockney set. And there were about 1,500 uh, tests, uh, tables around, uh, you know, from Shirley MacLaine and Michael Douglas to Barishnikov to Lauren McCall. She's at everything. <clears throat> and um, I was the guy that Metropolitan Home Magazine pulled in to uh, arrange the whole thing. Well, so, all right, all right. So I want to get I'm to all there. Over the place yeah, now. I want to get to there, but let's back up. So now, okay, we we figured out why you did. You went to New York, and you didn't want to come back to to Lake Forest. So okay, oh, God, you, no. you graduate, you go to. Well, you go at that to point, New York, my you, my you... my parents had left Lake Forest anyway. They were now okay. living down in, in Lake Shore Drive. Gotcha. Dad had. Uh, pretty much lived, they were sort of persona no grata in Lake Forest at a certain point anyway. Mm-hmm. And um, dad's uh, business had tanked and they no longer had the money to keep up. And my sister Abby married uh, married a wonderful man, uh, Arthur Mintz, still my brother-in-law, who helped the family out enormously and helped us them get back on their feet in many ways. And then dad, of course, had periods where he would be very productive and mom was working also. So they actually went down to Chicago and had a beautiful life on Lakeshore Drive. And I enjoyed coming back to Chicago and visiting. I was never estranged from them for long periods of time, but there was a period where I I was estranged from my father for a number of years. Because he was so constantly rude and constantly dismissive of me at all times that I just stopped talking with him. Around 1993, I didn't speak with him or see him for six years wow. and didn't miss it at all. Yeah. You know, I'm sorry, guys. He was just a bad guy to me. Mm-hmm. He just was. You know, he died in 2013. He finally passed. He's a tragic story. Yeah. At one time, he was a, an eager young man himself wanting to do something, but who knows how he got to be the way he was, but he wasn't a good guy. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of my art probably comes from that. Yeah. So. So, leave me. Where are we? Sure. Um, you're in New York. You are all yeah. of a sudden a strapping young lad. Yeah, yeah. And this strapping young lad tried a law firm on Park Avenue. I worked in a nightclub for a while. I worked at an advertising agency. I drove a truck. I was all over the place. And finally I decided, uh, you know, I, I, I want to act. I want to be an actor. I, this is what I want to do. Mm. So I called my mother and told her, and she started to protest, and I started yelling at her, I want to be an actor. And she changed on a dime. She's like, okay, (laughs) I'm finally hearing this. So I went to Stella Adler, and I studied at Stella Adler for two years. Now that's prestigious. Would you just show up and say, I'm coming here? Oh, it it was prestigious, but by the same token, at the point that I started at Stella Adler, if you had the money and you signed up, you were there. It's not like you had to be accepted. Whether you stayed was something else. Yeah. And again, I was always, you know, the third guy in the row in the back, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was never a star. Uh, but I did work hard there for two years. I studied a lot of Shakespeare. I studied voice. I studied movement. I studied stage combat. I, st- I took lots of technique classes, and I learned basic technique. And I got out, and I started to work. And I did work. Uh, I was... Over the course of the next 14, four, four years, excuse me, I was in 17 different productions, wow. including the first professional New York City revival of A Little Night Music, which mm. I got cast in. Uh, I did Long Day's Journey Into Night. I did dozens of soaps, uh, One Life to Live, um, All My Children, um, what was it, The Secret Storm, whatever it was, I can't remember. 
but I was I, I did soaps all the time. That it wasn't hard for me to get a job on a soap, but I was usually an extra in the background. Yeah. Never did commercials because I'm not very good on camera. Whenever you pull mm. a camera out, I'm uncomfortable. I don't. Really? Yeah. Even to this day, I don't like having my picture taken. I've never been comfortable on camera. Now, how did you? How could you be on soaps, but not commercials? What's, uh, what's the I, if I wasn't, well, I don't know. It just <laughs> it worked out that way. Yeah. Uh, when they would put a camera on me and I had to read soap lines because I had a lot of auditions for it, I would just, you know, get very. I would. I just wasn't. Yeah, I just. And I took soap. Uh, excuse me, camera technique classes. On stage, it's never been a problem. Yeah, I can stand up in front of two thousand people, do whatever, and I'm completely comfortable. Mm -hmm. It's just never an issue. But put a camera in there, and it's something oh, else. Fascinating. And I don't know why. I've never figured it out. Yeah. Uh, so I worked for a number of years and uh, did Death Trap, did Under the Yum Yum Tree, um, did a fair amount of Shakespeare. Hmm. Uh, Circle Rep was interested in me briefly for a while, and then they dropped it, but they were, for a while, it was exciting, because mm -hmm. this was in the hot days of Circle Rep, and they picked up other guys that I knew around me, but not me. I was still very involved with the gay world, and at that point, I'd met a man, now long dead, who figured very prominently in my life. Uh, and I had other friends, a few of whom are still alive, very few of them still alive, with whom I'm still very warm and in contact. Mm -hmm. uh, I got very involved in the dance world, uh, not, you know, I'm not a dancer myself at all, but I got very involved with it and I saw a lot of dance. And the man that I was involved with for many years was uh, very involved in the dance world also. So I, I've probably been in the Metropolitan Opera scene, the American Ballet Theater, more than any theater <laughs> at all. Yeah. And, and I've seen dozens of them, and I knew a lot of dancers back in the day. So when the AIDS crisis hit, I mean, it ripped right through our lives, but I mean, a lot of guys that I knew and cared for and loved dearly, you know, got hit pretty quickly and pretty early. Yeah. So that took a lot away, and I found that I just was less interested in auditioning. I can remember as I started pulling away, agents became more interested in me. Mm. Um, the last shows, I, the last acting I did, I did this whole thing called Plays for Living, uh, you had to be equity. I was equity at that point. I was mm -hmm. after equity and SAG. And uh, there was something that only equity actors could get. But there were problem plays. You'd go out to Exxon or you'd go out to a high school. You'd go out to a, an army base and you'd do a problem play. And you had one rehearsal and they were like 30-page scripts. And you had okay. to come in memorized and just do these things and fly with them. Yeah. And you're in front of an audience that has usually been herded in because they've got to see something. And everybody had to be good and make choices. No set. No costumes. It was just you're just up there. You're doing whatever. When you say a problem play, is that like well, an, I did, an issue? Yeah, an issue okay. play. Yeah. yeah, I mean there was the human resources play. I played the head of human resources named Stu Minton in one of them. And then there was the teenage alcoholic play, and I was actually playing a 16 year old kid who was an alcoholic. Mm. So at what at age were you at this? 32. Sure. You know, and I could pull it off because I was yeah. young and I knew how to I knew how to do that. Yeah. And I also learned don't act. Yeah. Don't act. Just say the lines, uh -huh. you know, say the lines and mean it, but stop acting because it, actually those were probably the most difficult audiences I ever played to. Mm. High school kids were in there about, you know, and they're looking at a play about alcoholism. The moment they detect you're acting, you, they're going to start hooting at you. Yeah. And I actually managed to turn them right around. Hmm. So, but I stopped because I just couldn't do it anymore because the AIDS crisis was every day, everywhere, constantly. I was deeply engaged in a... A life at that point. I'd been. A, I was wild. I was all over the place. Yeah. You know, I'd seen hundreds of guys at that point. Yeah. So I'm interested. I mean, um, the AIDS crisis hits and starts affecting your life profoundly. Mm -hmm. And and one of your reactions, I'm sure, out of many, one of your reactions is, I don't want to act anymore. Mm -hmm. Can you? bridge that gap like I don't see how you know this plus this equals this I was at the point where I didn't want to go to auditions get dressed up be pretty uh, I didn't like audition situations to begin with mm -hmm. and I couldn't put I had to be myself yeah and around that time fortuitously I met two young women uh, Karen Katz and uh, Vicki Gosh, 
Vicki, I'm sorry, I can't recall your last name. <laughs> and these young women worked at Lifetime, and they were producers there. And they pulled me in right away. They, they just had a feeling about me, the way that Jay Kreish had, the way that Stella did. Stella said some very nice things to me. Uh, and one of the reasons I worked so well along over the years is that every show I got in, people were always like, okay, he's a lot more on stage than we thought. Mm -hmm. So I went from show to show to show. Uh, I started doing uh, properties, set design, uh, art direction for a series of commercials. So I lapsed right into that, whereas acting, I barely made any money at all, and all of a sudden I was making 30000 a year just doing art direction. And I started getting regular gigs, and I didn't have to dress up. You know, I was living in the gym in those days. I was buff in those days. Yeah. I was always in the gym. I built myself up, but I didn't always feel like taking a shower and brushing my teeth and making my hair gold. You know, that whole 1980s yeah. look. <laughs> yeah. You laugh, but that's what we had to look like, you know, with the pink and the sleeves rolled up and the sure, tousled I'm hair. And the John Hughes movies. Yes, that's what it was, and that's what they were casting. Yeah. At that point, and I couldn't do that. So was it? Do you think that it was just the? I mean, I could, but I hated it. Sure. Was it just the artifice? You were just kind of through it. You couldn't put on the artifice. There anymore was also there it? was always lingering damage in me. I mean, I was always from. Um, remember, I grew up in a very unsupportive environment, mm -hmm. and now I was living in New York, pretty much alone in an apartment. I had friends, but I didn't know who was going to get sick next. Yeah. Um, few of my friends were actually high-class hookers, uh, guys who were beautiful and who were, you know, basically selling it every night, and I understood their pain, and they came to, you know, and I wasn't taking advantage of them or they me, but they began to see that, uh, you know, I got them. I understood. I also, uh, for a brief period of time, I was out at Rikers Island Prison doing um, social work. Really? Yeah. And yeah. during this time? Uh, in the 70s, adolescent oh, felons. Okay. Before. So, okay. you know, I always kind of threw myself into stuff. Yeah. You know, I've done a lot of shit. <laughs> <laughs> in any event, it was not the life I would have led if I'd stayed in Lake Forest. Right. Yeah. And part of what has been a challenge for me coming back to Lake Forest uh, in this last two years that I've been back here is that I've met some wonderful people, but they've had very different ranges of experiences. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know how many people I've met out here have traveled on bus to Rikers Island Prison every Wednesday night for a year and a half to talk with an adolescent felon to get him through the courts. Right. You know, how many of them have stripped in a nightclub? I did. I was a stripper did you? for a sure. Wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, how many of them did Shakespeare on the road? How many of them played teenage alcoholics in New Jersey? I mean, uh, I did uh, two summers of designing Shakespeare in the streets of Newark and uh, in Orange, New Jersey, for kids out of a Baptist church funded by Bristol Myers. I built sets for Julius Caesar and Macbeth and toured them around. And a lot of hard work. Yeah. Uh, so I've done a lot of stuff yeah. over the years. And uh, how many AIDS benefits? I can't even count now how many I did. That first one was a biggie, but the following year I did Skating for Life, in which I was overseeing a huge benefit where we built an ice skating rink with people like Brian Boitano, wow. you know. All right, well, let's, let's go back to that then. Uh, okay, so how did, you, how did you get involved in, in organizing? Like, I mean, you, you were active in, in yeah. activism, but how did you get involved in organizing? I can't even remember, to tell you the truth. I was always a can-do kind of a guy, and um, as I say, I was never a star, but I knew stars. Mm -hmm. I knew people who were stars in their fields, and I became, I was trusted by many because I'd never really had a failure. I'd never had, a, never in my life I've had something where I think, well, I'd like to do that and have it blow up, and I say, well, I guess I can't. Yeah. I mean, clockwise, it was a very good experience. All of a sudden, I've got a theater. Yeah. And look what I was able to do in a year. You didn't see all the shows, but mm -hmm. they were... Every one of them was was great. Well, we'll get and to that. far, far, far more than Waukegan expected. Yeah. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. All right. Yeah. So... Back up. <clears throat> yeah. Back it up. Uh, you got so another you, one of these? Yeah. Tell you what. 
I'll get it. You just keep on talking. How you got involved in organizing? Uh, I honestly don't remember. I was uh, one of the ways that I made money with the catering industry in the 1970s and the 1980s in New York was a big deal, especially with young actors along the way. And so, you know, we all, you know, had... fat tire. We've got one of them. Which one? Uh, the fat tire. Is, uh, no uh, more fat tire. Uh, uh, this one. Okay. So, there was a company called Glorious Food. There was another one called Abigail Kirsch. I worked for a man named Dan Falig, who was a piece of work. But the big Reagan 1980s, uh, the beautiful people, started putting in the, the million-dollar party ranges, and I started working on that circuit and very quickly I worked my way up to being a captain because even I was had the benefit of being organized and had a good loud stage voice so I could direct people mm -hmm. and I was never mean it's a plus yeah and I knew how to actually invigorate groups of people to doing something without making it about me there's a technique to it yeah. and I learned it very quickly so that's how, when I did this first AIDS benefit in 1986, I think it was, I was able to get 200 people to work for me for free. Yeah. Because by that time I had a name. And of yeah. course, this was before the internet, before mobile phones, before any of this. Yeah. You know, and I was just, I had an office at Metropolitan Home Magazine, and the editor, Dorothy Krishner, hired me because she'd heard, and I wasn't being paid, yeah. that, you know, I was a guy who could summon the forces together yeah. for this huge event that they were doing, which was also connected with, uh, back in the 80s, it was the New York, it wasn't like Fashion Week, it was, um, you know, open house week, so they would do, you know, incredible designs and amazing houses on, people would go from amazing Upper East Side penthouse thing to one, one to the other, and it was another, one of those New York things that happened, which I was involved with for years and years and years. The New York mercantile cycles which include things like fashion week which include design week which included things like the design studio that opened out in queens that all of that stuff in the 1980s and the 1990s you know i was never involved in the front of the project but i was always a reliable go-to guy who could you know get the tent put up yeah i mean i captained kennedy weddings the, at the time that I actually was doing Kennedy weddings, I'd gotten myself to the point that I would say, I will do that, I'll come in and organize it for them, but I'm not going to stay for the cleanup. Hmm. And they would hire me anyway. Wow. That's how I got to Calvin Klein. You went to Calvin Klein? How did that happen? What do you mean you got to Calvin Klein? I was in what capacity? I was a department head at Calvin Klein you for, were? for six years. You are Forrest Gump. Yeah. Jesus. For, for six years. Wow. Yep. <laughs> yeah. All right. I was right down the hall from Mr. Klein. I always called him Mr. Klein. I did not call him Calvin. Uh, he's a nice man. Yeah? Yes. I had a lot of respect for Mr. Klein. Hmm. A lot of respect. But I was hired to oversee what was called house services. So I became the director of house services and working alongside the women of public relations who were all beautiful, privileged women whom I really respected greatly. Mm-hmm. Uh, these women worked hard to put on Mr. Klein's couture events. So basically, I was the guy who managed all of the hospitality for Calvin Klein, which at Calvin Klein in the 1990s was a salaried position. So I was a director in facilities management there mm -hmm. for many years. And Were you still involved with the theater world at that no, point? At I was all? long gone with the, from the theater world at that point. Okay. I was long gone. And I'd also bottomed out at certain points in my life. You know, I would not know what I was doing and retreat to my apartment and just go from the apartment to the gym and back again and be depressed and alone and then go out and get laid. And, you know, and uh, I had back problems in those days as well. And this and was during the Calvin Klein years? No, before, before Calvin that? Klein. I mean, I was up and down. Sure. So, all right, let's bridge. You're involved with AIDS activism. Mm-hmm. Must have been a And scenic work. I was doing scenic doing work. scenic work. At yeah, I was doing scenic time. work regularly from 1985 to 1992. Gotcha. 1992, I sort of bottomed out for a while. I had a terrible back injury in 1990, 1991, and I was on painkillers for quite a long time. Hmm. I had a very difficult passage of my life, which I'm not going to talk about okay. in this interview. Sure. But I'll tell you about privately sometime. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, the relationship that I had with the man on the Upper East Side had gone sour. 
Uh, he was uh, an extraordinary person. He's long dead. I miss him now, but I had to walk away from him because he'd become pretty emotionally abusive to me. Mm. And I was playing the role of victim. And that's not a good thing yeah. when, you're, when you make yourself the victim. I have met a number of people out here, I have to say, who are victims. And their whole thing is to sort of express themselves as victims. To have the world reach out and say, oh, I'm so sorry for mm -hmm. you. Oh, isn't that terrible what you went through? Oh, isn't that awful? Well, we all have that. But you have to move beyond that. Yeah. I was also lucky in that I never had uh, drug or alcohol problems, which is, I was blessed there. Because yeah. a lot of the guys that I knew along the way had serious substance abuse problems. We all came from the same kind of strange place of either parental or social disregard when we were young. Yeah. Some of the men I knew over the years actually had very good, strong families. Others didn't. I was also very lucky in that I had uh, dear friends, uh, John and Kathy Cuckins, who uh, Kathy and I grew up together here in Lake Forest. John and I went to school at Miami. John was a New Yorker. And um, they were more than they really probably ever knew uh, an anchor to me. Uh, I introduced John and Kathy. They were married in 1977 at Windows in the World in the World Trade Center. Mm. And they've had, I think, a great marriage. And their two sons, Johnny and Josh Cuckins, are great young men. I think of them as godsons. But they're also friends to me in their own right. Hmm. Uh, love those boys dearly. Love John and Kathy dearly. And as I lived a kind of a wild life in New York frequently, nevertheless, there was always John and Kathy that I could go to. They now live in Hartford, hmm. West Hartford, Connecticut. And we've grown apart over the years uh, as anything happens. I haven't seen them now for a couple of years since I've been out here. Um, but there they are. Yeah. I also have good friends who, uh, who still live in a beautiful apartment on Central Park West. Bill Chastain and John DeSorti, whom I've known since the 1970s. Uh, they live in kind of a faded elegance, sorry guys, but <laughs> in a gorgeous apartment across the street from the Dakota, just over Central Park West. I love going back to New York because when I walk through the doors of Bill and Jean-Paul's apartment, I'm 22 again, yeah. and anything is possible, because we've known each other for that long, yeah. and because they've survived everything that I've survived, and more, yeah. and they had rich, exciting lives. If I think of myself as Forrest Gump, Jean-Paul really is Forrest Gump. I mean, he has been everywhere, and known everybody, and done everything, uh, and he's an extraordinary chef, and they, they still hold little dinner parties, and still can command people to come together for fabulous and wonderful evenings. Well, let's uh, talk about that. You go back to New York now because you now live here. How did that happen? I, <laughs> how did it happen? How did I wind <laughs> up out here? Yeah. Uh, I came back for what I thought was going to be one week in February of, of 2014 because my mother was failing. My dad had died in 2013. And I came back what I thought was going to be a week. I'd been working on a jazz project with a filmmaker in New York, and uh, he fired me, like, over the phone. Uh, While you were here? Here, here yeah. Hmm. And I couldn't believe it because I'd been working with him for a year, and he was sort of lost without me. Um, Did you piss him off or something? He didn't like the way I was editing his stuff, and I was costing him too much money. Uh -huh. It was a communication issue. Yeah. And I was so pissed off that... I left the apartment where I'm in Lake Forest in a snowstorm and started to walk to the Jewel because I cook and I was going to buy stuff for dinner. I slipped in the ice and I ruptured the quadriceps of my right leg. And I had been seriously overweight for a few years on and off. I mean, I was a beautiful young thing at one point, but I started putting on the weight after Joey died. Joey died in 1999 and by 2003 or 2004 I just didn't care what I looked like as much. Yeah. So the the girth that I have on me now has been on coming on for the last 10 years. 
you know, uh, after having lived in the gym for 30 years and then not. But I'm glad I had it at one point. At any rate, so I've actually ruptured the quadriceps of both knees because for years I was both running and doing heavy squats. So I perforated my knees. Uh And uh, I ruptured this quadriceps in 2007 and then this one in 2014. And when that happens, you can't walk. It's a major surgery. So I was stranded out here with a New York apartment and no life here. And uh, I have hold it together so that now I still have my New York residency but I'm here yeah fortunately insurance covered it but I had to go to, I couldn't walk for yeah. six weeks so you were just living in your mom's house yeah at that point yeah I was, I, I was living in my mother's apartment my brother was there and basically I was going to physical therapy but I couldn't go to physical therapy for six weeks either I mean it was you know when you have a ruptured quadriceps you can't move your leg right you can't do it. It's, it does. It's you, a big muscle. It's well. It's it's separated. Yeah. It, I mean, you can't wiggle your toes. I mean, it's like, it's like a spinal injury, mm-hmm. and I've had both of them go. Oof. So every step right now, it's not painful, but every step, it's like I've got a tourniquet wrapped around my knees. There's big scars around the kneecaps. Yeah, I used to be a runner too. Mm-hmm. So, and yes. I've had shoulder surgeries and everything else. You're I, a wreck. Yeah, I'm a wreck. Yep. So. All right, you're you're going to physical therapy, and at what point do you decide? Well, I'm here now. Well, I'm here now. I contacted some people that I knew, and they asked me to come to something which called is called Play Readers, which is a group in Lake Forest and Lake Bluff of people who get together and read scripts. And there's some lovely people there. Mm-hmm. And I went to one that night, and I met a few people, and they were all part of the whole center stage thing in Lake Forest. Well, as it happens, center stage had developed from Group 4, which was started by Jay Kreisch. And the first year of Group 4, in 1971, they did the musical Bells Are Ringing, and they had an acting role that Jay couldn't fill. And I remember Jay called me and said, Bob, I've got a role here. It's one scene, but he's a Broadway producer. You've got to come in and make a big impression fast, and then you have nothing else to do. But I need a strong actor in this one scene, and I know you can do it. Mm So I was in Bells Are Ringing. So ironically, I was in the first Group 4 production ever. And uh, I was pumping gas out of the Oasis that summer. Uh, so uh, I got involved in, I, I auditioned for Damn Yankees, which they did the summer of 2014. I auditioned, I was on crutches still. And I okay, even, yeah, I was just going to ask you, how I, are you moving around at this point? I was on crutches. Hmm. But they'll take anybody. Yeah, right. If you can, if you can sing, and or even if you can't, if you're just there yeah. and you're comfortable on stage and you have a good attitude, they're yeah. they're happy to have you. Mm-hmm. So I made friends along the way. So uh, at this point, had you decided I'm here now? Yeah, along the way, I, I, my New York life is pretty much over. And was that a tough realization to come? No, to? no. I've never I've never had a hard time with reality. Okay. I mean, look how quickly I moved away from clockwise. Yeah. Um, when when it changes, you go with the next thing. Yeah. You know, don't linger. Okay, so you're in Damn Yankees. And I was in Damn Yankees, and I got a call from uh, Melanie Rummel, who is an old friend, uh, and who is very highly placed politically. She's an attorney here in Lake County. And I went to high school with her. Mm. And... Uh, Madeline Sergal was leaving Clockwise. She was the artistic director of Clockwise. She'd put it together. She'd founded the place. And it was a courageous thing that she did. But she it had taken too much of her family life. She just couldn't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'd had three seasons, maybe four. They'd put in a number of plays which had varying quality. Mm-hmm. But some of them were pretty respectable I, I asked around and I've never gotten I've never gotten a really solid opinion on anything that was done in the Madeline years mm-hmm. some people hated what she was doing other people dismissed it a few were fairly interested uh, some loved it mm-hmm. but at any rate when I got up to clockwise uh, in Waukegan in uh, January of 2015 they were about to mount Mr. Benny and the place was already pretty much gone. Mm. Madeline just wasn't interested anymore. She'd moved on. 
Pat Kerr was the managing director, and he had really lost his vision there as well. The place was barely alive. And they had this actor, Tim Newell, who was going to come in and do the Jack Benny play, and they really hadn't set anything up. They had no director, they had no set, they had no nothing. Mm-hmm. He was just, they had to, he was going to come in and do this monologue, and that was it. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I'll direct it. And they said, fine. And this was... Had you been offered the role of artistic director yet at yes, this point? Yes, I okay. had been offered that role. The board had already what there was the, had approved that. Okay. So that I was going to become the artistic director as of February first. But in the meantime, I thought I'd oversee Mr. Benny. Gotcha. So I'm curious, just to bridge the gap here, you hadn't been doing any theater in New York for a while. I hadn't done any theater. So when in you New came York back home, thirty years. Wow. So when you came back home, now theater is 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 your life again. It's your it's your job. What? Why? It feels right. Just a natural, natural thing. It feels right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It was one of those things for me at Clockwise. I just very quickly knew what I was doing up there. Yeah. Was it difficult at all after being gone for thirty years, or was it just like riding a bike? Riding a bike. Yeah. But even though you had never done that before, you were never an artistic director. You acted. You did. You did scenery and and things. But you just, just. It's it's a natural thing for me. Yeah. yeah. And also, I don't need to be the star. Mm. I don't need to be the guy on stage. And that's, I think, what makes me a little different. Mm. Um, I don't need to be known that way. The people that I'm working with know who I am, and they'll know the energy that I'm putting in there. Madeline Sergal, when she created Clockwise, she made it very much about her personality, her... Ellen Stewart-ness, if you will. Ellen Stewart being the woman who founded La Mama. So the La Mama Theater Company on East 4th Street, which was a theatrical phenomenon in New York for 40 years, was really all about the Ellen Stewart phenomenon. And I don't know if Madeline knows who Ellen Stewart was, but Madeline is an Ellen Stewart type in that she is a highly charismatic person who invested her her personality and formed everything which is great. I work differently. Yeah. It's not that way for me. For me, I mean, I'll select the plays, but then the director's the star. Mm-hmm. And I was I would be around for every single rehearsal, but I don't it's not right for me to give notes yeah. then as to what's going on. I've signed my my belief over to the artists. Yeah. And that was one thing that Madeline did that I would completely disagree with is you do not come in and give notes to something. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. No, no, no. So you did... It's not appropriate. You were the artistic director of Clockwise for two years? No, just one year. Just one year. One year. But in that one year, I had 85 performance nights. The doors were open, and we were producing and taking tickets for 85 nights, which was far more than it had happened in the past. Uh, I produced seven shows, Hmm. and um, six of them ran for a month. One of them ran for only two weekends, Hmm. and people came. Donations went way up. Hmm. Uh, we had interest. It was coming along. Uh, but in February, the board made the decision, appropriately, I might add, to close the doors because Waukegan is just not supporting the arts at this point. Yeah. By the very lay of the land downtown, there was no place for people to go to eat. There's no yeah. street traffic. There's no restaurant there's nothing. Barely a place to park. Yeah. On a night that the Genesee is doing right. something, it's very tough. Mm-hmm. So, ironically, this made the Waukegan audiences better. Because if they were coming to Clockwise to see something, they wanted to see that. Sure. They, they worked for it. They worked for it. <laughs> the people who walked in the front doors at Clockwise to see something were almost always terrific audiences. Yeah. I don't mean like loud and vocal, but I mean attentive and there uh-huh. because they certainly couldn't walk out the door and then get a, a you know a hamburger and a beer down the right. street. They were there to see the play. Yeah. I've seen a lot of theater back here in Lake County, and without any question, the Waukegan audiences are far superior. Hmm. Um, the Death of a Salesman audience, they were attentive, I know, because I sat behind them and right. I watched them every night, and they were focused on what was going on on the stage. But they weren't terribly demonstrative. You might not have known what was right. going on. 
in terms of the audience. I could see their attention span. Yeah. Well, my wife said she sat next to at least two people who fell asleep. So yeah, maybe not all of them were attentive. Well, they weren't. They weren't moving around. <laughs> they, they weren't. And of course, that play was the way that Barb directed it. It flew yeah. all the way on through. There was not a lot of dead air. Yeah. And if there was any, then you know I tried to hammer it all out of you. Yeah. So it's too bad that clockwise failed. But I understand that. Yeah. It was. And you seem. Fine with it. I mean, did you yeah. understand the decision, and you've you've moved on, and uh, now you're to. looking for your now you're looking for your next. Yeah, thing? and I've got a few things going on. Uh, I want very much to produce the night we bombed Lincoln Towing, mm -hmm. and I want very much to produce Horrible Weapons of the Future. You know, uh, Michael Higgins has got a a couple of terrific plays, and he hasn't been able to get them to produce yet. Mm -hmm. And I know Richard Shadston believes in them, and he's an unusual voice. And I was, I've had to say no to Michael a couple of times. I've been very disappointed yeah. saying, you know, like, I'm going to do it now. Oh, I've lost my theater. And he's stricken, yeah. you know, because I've tried. And you continue to. And I continue to. And now you are living with your mother? Oh, still? yeah, I'm still there okay. in the apartment. Living taking with mom. care of her? Yeah. She, I'm sure she was taking care of you for a while when you ruptured your... Uh... No, no, no. no. No, I, I was pretty much out of it. Uh, Dave takes care of us financially. He works very hard. He's a project manager uh, with a good firm down in the city. And uh, he's um, got a good financial career, and he works very hard. But basically, I'm the domestic one hmm. between us. I'm a good cook, so I have dinner ready. I'm the one who does much of the shopping, not all of it. Dave will shop as well, but... You know, Dave's one of these come, people who comes in, he'll graze at the refrigerator door. He doesn't even want to fry an egg. I mean, sure. we had a little argument tonight. Got so. a little Oscar and Felix thing going yeah. on between no, you? No, I'm not really Felix okay. so much. I mean, I like to wash the dishes, but I'm pretty unkempt myself. <laughs> gotcha. You know, I don't need to have it just so. Uh, but I do cook and do a meal. Yeah. And then he'll do the dishes. Gotcha. So we've got a pretty good, we've got it worked out. Yeah. We're okay. Mom is past the point of being able to do much of anything. Gotcha. She needs pretty much constant care. Is that difficult for you? No, I'm a natural at it. Yeah. Not difficult at all. Mm. I mean, today I made her take a shower. I have to clean up after her a lot. There are a few accidents. Dave and I both do. Neither of us are squeamish. Yeah. So there's a lot of up-close-and-personal stuff we do for her all the time mm. that we have to do. Um, it's not hard for me. No, I'm curious... She was not supportive of you when you first got into theater and mm -hmm. wasn't supportive of you until you yelled at her, as you said. Correct. Since then, has she been supportive of you, especially now that you're she's back changed. into theater? She's changed. Well, she's dim now. She's five years old now. So she, you know, doesn't really know what I'm doing. Yeah. Uh, she never saw anything clockwise because we can't get her out of the house. She sure. I, I doubt that she even knew the name of the place. Yeah. She would know that I was going off to my theater, whatever mm -hmm. that is. Mother is very sweet. Uh, she's not difficult at all. She does not seem to remotely miss my father. She mm. was married to him for more than 60 years. She certainly doesn't grieve that he's gone. You know, on the anniversary of her, his death, I said, do you want to go to the church? No. Hmm. She just doesn't really seem to think about him. Yeah. Uh, which is just kind of a sad commentary. Poor dad's ghost is walking around somewhere thinking I blew it. Um, what was your question? I'm all over the place. Whether it was whether it's difficult for you, uh, no, to be tending uh -uh. To your mother. no. The difficult thing right now is to keep the energy going for yourself. Yeah, that's the challenge. Now, I've I've seen this, especially with a number of the star people I knew in the past in New York, and I knew a lot of them mm -hmm. who would have extraordinary things that happened to them in their 20s and 30s, you know, on stage at the Metropolitan Opera doing amazing work, touring in national shows, you know, starring on television, being in movies, uh, you know, showrunners for major series mm -hmm. out in L.A. Um, I've worked with a number of people, along, and I'm sure most of them, have, if not all, have forgotten me. But I've gotten a chance now at age 62, 63, I'm 63 now, to do 
you know, to give my, they say you know, American lives don't have third acts, and I'm about to give myself a fourth act, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, after my partner died, Joey died in 1999, uh, I took care of him for a couple of years, and uh, I went numb for a long time. I was numb during 9-11. I was in New York during 9-11, and it was, I'm, it's shocking to say I felt absolutely nothing, mm. nothing at all, at all of this that was going on around me, and I was, I was so completely checked out in my life. Yeah. And part of that damage lingers to this day, part mm. of that separateness, that mm. sense of there's the world over there, people with their families and their friends and their children and their lives, and I'm not part of that at all. I don't really feel a part of my own family. I never have, and I never will. I love them, but I don't feel part of their lives. Yeah. I don't feel part of anybody's life. I'm sort of here on my own, doing what I can. But if I put together theater and give people an opportunity to come to a place where something is put together that I got there, that gives me great personal satisfaction. That's the same thing. And is, do you find that that's what keeps you going? You yeah, said it's oh, difficult yeah. to keep going. Yeah, that, that keeps me going. Yeah. That is what's going to keep me going. You know, I don't have a significant other person in my life, and I probably never will again. And uh, because neither of my parents had a gift for bonding, you know, I was raised, I don't know what bonding is. I don't know what a father relationship is. I have no idea what that is. Mm-hmm. No clue what it is to have a father. Because mine had no interest in me, and let it be known that he was absolutely not interested in me whatsoever. Do you feel that? Like, is that is that a presence? The fact that you don't have that, that you didn't have that. It's informed everything I've done all my life. I've tried to compensate through it by doing good work for people along the way. But I did, I decided many many years ago I was going to try to put something back into the universe that I was not given. Hmm. So when I when I see talent. I make a point of saying, I see you. Mm-hmm. I see what you've got. I see what you're doing. I see what you can do. Yeah. Let me help you bring it out. Let me help you discover yourself. That's all I need to do is be able to see that and bring that out. Yeah. That's very exciting to well, me. That's fascinating. And that's noble, I think, in a way to, like you've said, you don't need to be the star. You don't need to be the center of attention. And what you Not are... I don't want to be. And what you're doing, what's driving you is, is really, it's helping others. And I feel like it's, it's probably been like that for a long time. I mean, back, starting back from, maybe not starting, but including when you were so involved with, with AIDS activism. I mean, this is, you seem to have a sort of intuitive sense of something greater than you and, and a need to, to serve it. That said, thank you, it's not been easy for me until recently to play the long game. How, what do you mean by that? So often we see somebody right in our face who's done something that pisses us off and we forget what our bigger interest is. Mm-hmm. And we get angry about something that really, you know, in six months you won't even remember. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm fascinated with the, this, you mentioned the concept of the long game. Um, the long game. What do I want to do? Where do I want to be in five years? Where mm-hmm. do I want to be in ten years? Do you have this? Like, is it is it in you? I'm your forming head? it. Yeah, it's yeah. got to be. Yeah, yeah because uh, I know where I was in 1982. 1982 to you probably. I, mean, I might as well be saying 1941 or that 19- was, I was not born. Yeah, yeah. And to <laughs> me, 1982 was the year that I was doing Death Trap. Yeah. On tour and was doing a damn good job with it. Yeah. In 1982, back in those you know in the Miami Vice days and the Don Johnson days of the 1980s and that whole look, that's what we had. But that yeah. was, I was in my 30s then. I was 30 years old in 1982. And and so how is that informing your long I, game plan? Now? I just remember that back then things felt like okay, this is a big thing that I'm involved with now, and of course it's. That's, you know, 34 years ago, and I was very engaged with getting acting jobs and doing soap operas, and all of a sudden the age thing was happening, and I was involved in a fairly glamorous lifestyle in in a penthouse on the east side with a man who was long dead, who was very important to me, Uh, and I had 
dear friends who were some a few of which are still alive who were involved with their own dance and or law careers hello ralph i'm thinking of you right now and doug uh so as you're as you're looking back at that and you're seeing that from this perspective this many years later is that informing you that in the how does that inform you your your path forward are you saying you know okay i i know where i was and now i want to know where i'm going or are you saying that those are kind of halcyon days back then that that might no. not mean much no 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 they were halcyon days but they do mean a lot because they're part of a whole longer arc i think i'm still very employable a lot of people when they get to be in their 60s they're really no longer employable mm-hmm. they've checked out in the world they've got you know they're going to watch monday night football or whatever they do mm-hmm. uh, and they're going to barbecue the steak in the backyard, and they're going to deal with the kids or whatever they, whatever they are. It's all about their boyfriend or their girlfriend. But basically, they've shrunk their universe. Mm-hmm. My universe has shrunk too, but I'm trying to expand it, and it's really only shrunk because I don't have a car right now. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to expand it. I am still... I wish to still be engaged with the world. One of the things that I'm involved with right now, and I hope it works out, is... Uh, uh, I write infomercials. Do you really? Yes, I do. Mm. And they've all been produced through uh, a man that I respect enormously down in Miami, Jose Caban, whom I've met along the years, through another f- foray, which I'll tell you about once the microphones are up. <laughs> uh, Jose is a great guy, and he is a talented, talented producer in Miami who's at kind of a a point in his life where he needs to really re-engage his whole business. He's trying to rebrand himself, and I might be working with him on his rebrand. I mean, I've written infomercials for, believe it or not, Beauty Schools of America, for several car, used car things for, oh gosh, how many have I written? I can't even remember. Lots. How do you, uh, what, how do I even uh, Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know those were written. They, they seem so uh, Oh, no. Improvised. Oh, a- everything's scripted. Oh, no, no, yeah. no, no. When you get a video pack in there in a studio and people are standing in front of the camera, you know, you've got to actually script sure. it because yeah. it's all about, you know, yeah, how much yeah. studio time do you have and, you know, who's your gaffer and who's your best boy and how much are you paying the sound guy. Yeah. You don't leave it up to chance. Yeah. Wow. So you're writing infomercials and you're looking for your next... Mm-hmm. Next big thing. Yeah, and I might be doing an art direction job in a short movie too. Really? Mm-hmm. And are these just all people you know? This is, yeah. These are just connections. These are people I've met. I've, I've, these are connections I've made over the years, and people that I've met since I've come back here. Never burn a bridge. Yeah. Never. Don't do it. If you're furious with the people that you're just leaving, whatever, swallow it, yeah. because you just don't know what's going to happen. So I'm curious. Um, like I said, you do seem like Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump had a um, habit later in life in the movie to, of just kind of sitting back and like remembering, remembering his life. Do you ever just find yourself doing that? Just all thinking the time, back all the time, all the time, Nick. I'm riven with too much nostalgia. Hmm. I am a very sentimental person at heart, and there are pieces of music that I will hear that will take me back to the 1970s. I was very lucky to be in New York in the 1970s. The 1970s, Manhattan. I got there in 1975. I mean, I remember Studio 54 from the first year. I mean, I was there. Hmm. Uh, It was an extraordinary place. It was a frontier in a way. There was a lot going on. And um, many of the men that I knew in those days, most of them are dead mm-hmm. and long since. Mm-hmm. So I have a particular kind of memory, which not that many have. I'm also, believe it or not, a published reporter. Mm-hmm. I was writing pieces for Edge and the Net for a couple of years, and one of the first things I wrote was um, uh, I wrote a retrospective of A Night on Christopher Street, 1977, which I think is still available online. I was just going to ask that. I think it's still there. It was a good piece hmm. in which I reconstructed what you know the gay world was like when 
was still in the wake of Stonewall. Do you know what Stonewall mm-hmm. was? Yeah. yeah, okay. Still in the wake of the summer of Stonewall, which was 1969, so that by 1977, before the crisis hit, it was very egalitarian. You were finding men of all different social levels who were actually coming to a space in the city because they were finding it safe for the first time to actually publicly be who they were. Yeah. Uh, there were places, you know, like Fire Island, where they could always do that. Parts of Provincetown. I've never been to Provincetown. Uh, parts of L.A., San Francisco, certainly, mm-hmm. where, you know, men and women could be who they were, but they were rarefied, yeah. you know. Uh, in the Hollywood Hills, very rarefied, mm-hmm. and then it began to get more of a national broadcast. And by 1977, it was still rarefied, but it was becoming more and more acceptable. And I was lucky to be part of that because I was a kid, and I was damn cute, and I was smart, and because I was good looking, I had entree to places that normally. Wouldn't I mean? I remember one night in a dance club way downtown that I went to in those days, long, 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 long gone. And I'm dancing with friends, and the guy I'm dancing with is actually the attorney for the place. And a woman next to me who was dancing next to me clambered up in a banquet and started to sing. It was Diana Ross. (laughs) Wow, yeah, (laughs) didn't expect you to drop that name. Yeah, and there was another time that I was actually being pulled through a crowd and by friends and this was in a, a dance club down way downtown and this hand clamped over me like this and began to pull me back so that I was being pulled between two different things and I turned around and looked at this guy right in the eye and it was Rudolf Nureyev. I'm not familiar with that name. A uh, great ballet dancer danced with uh, Margot Fontaine and, the, and he was a Russian ballet dancer of the mm-hmm. highest world-class order. Well, he, was a, he was a star in the ballet world for many, many years. It just so, caught his eye? Yeah, it was Nureyev, and he was pulling me back towards him like this, and I was like, oh my God, that's <laughs> Rudolf Nureyev. And it was like Barishnikov, sure. like that. Yeah. And my friends pulled me, and I said, did you see who that is? Oh, Rudy. Oh, he'll, you know, forget it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a... That's a hell of a story. I'm sure you've got a billion of those. I do. Have a, a, I have too many of them. It's a it's a full life, and it's. I'm glad to know you, and I'm really glad that you came. Well, it's all about what I can do me. next. I mean, there's no guarantee. Well, I'm glad to know you, no matter what, and well, I and I appreciate you. you uh, you sitting and talking with me. Do you think anybody's going to listen to all this? Maybe. Who gives a shit? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Bob. All right. <laughs> Thank you.